So the first time that I watched La Mis and every subsequent time that I see that scene, I think about my own empty table with empty chairs. It's literally right there on the other side of this wall, just outside the chapel in the seminary lunchroom. It was there my friends, my colleagues, and I plotted the overthrow of the Greek and Hebrew professors. It was there we rallied around the coffee pots uh, discussing how we would overthrow Dr. Miller's exegesis class. It was there we sang the songs of revolution and created words like we theologians like to do, like Frimerian. I, I made that one, by the way. It was there we spoke of how we would become agents of revival. We would raise with voices ringing and that we would bring renewal and revitalization to the denominations and the churches that we served. But every year that goes by, the table gets a little more empty. My friends, you see, we were sent to the lonely barricades where reinforcements rarely arrive. Some of my friends didn't make it through the ordination process, had to start their vocation all over again. Others were sent to toxic congregations that chewed them up and spit them out. Others were sent to congregations where they preached the gospel, they loved well, they washed feet, and yet they could not stem the flow of blood and decline of those congregations that closed their doors. Some of my friends relapsed into old destructive behavior patterns. We were sent to the lonely barricade. And I have to ask why. I wrestle with that question a lot, actually. And I know that there are external forces. There's the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms. There's uh, things that have their sights set, their bullseye on the church. But I have to believe that some of the greatest wounds the church experiences today are self-inflicted wounds. And sometimes the greatest enemy of the church is the church. I don't come to you today uh, with some golden answer um, as some kind of hero. I'm a, I'm a fellow pioneer on the missionary frontier of North America, failing forward, learning my way as I go. But I found a life-giving word on the death-dealing barricades, and I came to share it. I came to tell you today about the lonely barricade. Grab your Bibles if you have them. We're going to need them. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is a light unto our path. It is a mirror that shows us who we are. It's a revelation, O oh God, that shows us who you are. And so we pray this would not be simply time of just another church service, but we come humbly seeking an encounter with you. We ask that you would cause these words to burst forth from their ink cage and live and dance in us in incarnate ways. We ask a Holy Spirit that you would breathe upon your scriptures and bring them to life in our midst and that you would give us the strength to not simply be hearers of the word only, but doers also. It's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray and all God's people said, amen. I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. I could close the Bible, sit down, and we've all heard a sermon already today. Can I get an amen? amen? Paul the Apostle is a guy who knows a little bit about lonely barricades. He spent some time there as he goes out as a, a sent one, an apostello, 
uh, seeding the gospel in different cultures all throughout the known world. Uh, He's cultivated leadership. We could take a page from Paul's playbook about uh, growing disciples for mission and ministry because he's done just that all over the ancient world, and he's taken his stripes for doing that too, hasn't he? He's been shipwrecked, snake-bitten, betrayed by his own colleagues. He's been imprisoned multiple times. He's preached the religious Super Bowl at Ephesus. He's caused uproars in Thessalonica. (laughs) And he's been incarcerated, beaten, whipped, stripped, and now from a prison cell. He gives us these words. From the lonely barricade, he says, be worthy of the calling. Live a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul has faithfully lived out Jesus's model to make disciples of Jesus Christ in the world. He knows all about the gospel of Matthew in the 28th chapter where Jesus says, I want you to go out and big, really big, build really big cathedrals, make them as fancy as you can, and put a sign in front of it that says, meet me here from 9 to 11, and we'll talk about the kingdom of God. Paul knows what Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, his traveling companion in the 10th chapter, where he says, hey, I want you to take a break from the road, and I'm going to send you to go get a couple shingles on the wall so that you can be a professional minister. Now, we know that Jesus didn't really teach either of those things, did he? Can I get an amen? Hopefully. It's not in the Greek. It's not really there. What Jesus does teach, the death-conquering master of all, standing in all his resurrected glory, is I want you to go therefore, and make disciples of all the ethne, all the nations. And then he tells us how to do it, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've taught you. What he does say in the Gospel of Luke in the 10th chapter there is uh, doing ministry by multiplication. So he starts with 12 that are sent out, then it's 72 that he's sending out, and the whole ministry is undergirded with prayer. He says, I want you to pray because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And if we're not in a situation in the United States where the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, I don't know what situation we're in. But he sends them out in teams. So there's no heroic solo leaders in Jesus's ministry model. We go together in teams. And I want you to find the persons of peace, those that will unlock the key to the community. I want you to do life with them. Get ready for some poor living too, because you're going to live off the goodness of others. And if they don't hear what you have to say, shake the dust off your feet and go to the next church. And then finally he says, and I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. And we all say, amen, glory to God, sign us up, right? You got to be crazy for this ministry stuff. You know that, right? But Paul has faithfully done exactly what Jesus commanded. He's gone out and made disciples. He's planted churches, cultivated those churches. He's done ministry in teams. He's done all the things that Jesus instructs, and he finds himself on a lonely barricade. And there, potentially in his final sermon that he sends out is this circulatory letter in the area of Ephesus. He tells the people how to be the church. Now, my team member over there, Pastor Wilma, uh, had the inspiration for this uh, sermon series that we're doing at Wildwood. Our preaching team is doing a series through Ephesians called Life as the Beloved Community of Resurrection. We're talking about how amazing it is that Jesus conquered death and was resurrected in his physical body, still bearing the trophies of his glory, as Wesley says, who ascends into the heavens and sits at the right hand of God. But it's just as amazing that God has made another body for Jesus 
And it's called you and me. It's called the church, the body of Christ in the world, which Christ is the head. Sometimes I think in the United States, the church is a lot like a headless horseman because we put other things at the head of Christ's church, like allegiances to politics and flags and those kind of things. But when Jesus is the head of his church and we are functioning as the body, Paul gives us really three keys. And I want you to think about this as a formula. So unity plus diversity equals maturity. Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, unity plus diversity equals maturity. Now, when I look at the church of Jesus Christ in the United States, the West, I see a church with no unity, no diversity, and no maturity. We, as the body of Christ, Paul gives us seven ones here. We're one spirit, one baptism, one Lord, one faith, all those things, things that we have Uh, said are essential and stand on our faith on those things are now up for debate. And not only are there division uh, among different denominations, but within denominations, we're tearing ourselves apart by being divided on the very things that Christ has called us to be unified upon. And then when we're talking about diversity, now I'm not talking about racial diversity. That could use a whole nother sermon and why in the United States still the church hours, the most segregated hour in the country where the world is light years ahead of where the church is. But what he's talking about is a different kind of diversity. And it's the diversity of the gift sets that Jesus, who has uh, ascended through his incarnation or his harrowing of hell, however you want to see that, then ascends as this victorious Lord then gives gifts to the church. And those gifts are you. Paul tells us in the 11th verse that the gifts that he gave for the building up, for the maturity of the body of Christ, are that some would be apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Now, I want to go a step further with this and not believe that just Christians embody these personality types, but uh, Alan Hirsch, Michael Frost, some missiologists say that every human being is created in one of those fivefold personality types. So if you think about it, what is an apostle? Well, they're a sent one. They're the ones that have no problem going into new territory, starting new things. They're very entrepreneurial. They're kind of hard to be around. Can I get an amen? Because they're always moving on to the next thing, and they have to have stabilizers who come behind them and kind of settle what they've pioneered. Then there's the uh, uh, prophets. Now, these are the folks that stand on the edge of the community, and they speak God's truth both into the community to hold the people to fidelity and the truths of God, but they also speak outside the community to those that are not in to to give sometimes a foretelling effect, but usually just to speak the truth of God into the present. Now, both of those uh, uh, gift sets, apostles are more outward focused, growing the body of Christ, going out, right? Prophets serve that kind of uh, in-between role. Then there's the evangelists. There's some of you here today. These are those really good, would make great car salesmen right? They could sell ice to Eskimos. People like Bob Tuttle, who would go into the bathroom and have a man saved at the urinal within five minutes. The infectious recruiters who are always bringing people to the cause, the evangelists who are out there preaching the gospel, casting out the seeds and planting that good news everywhere. Then there's these last two roles called the pastor, uh, the shepherd, and the teacher. Uh, And the word here for teacher, didaskalos, I took some semesters of Greek, for the love of God, I'm going to use it. Can I get an amen? <laughs> and then there's the poimain. 
And those are kind of inwardly focused. Now, that one word, pastor, how many times do you think that word is used in the New Testament in association with the gift set of, uh, in the body of believers? Okay, good. Any Bible scholars studying Ephesians? One time. One time. But yet, we call every clergy person, what? A pastor. We pigeonhole people into that very small role, don't we? And then the didaskalos, who's the teacher, they're also an inward-focused uh, place within the body where they are passing down the traditions of the faith from one generation to the next. And we need all five of those. Can I get an amen? amen. But what we've done in the West is we've exiled those apostles, prophets, and evangelists. Now, in a Christendom model where you got uh, people that actually come to church and you have blue laws and you've got an attractional model that actually works if you build it, they will come, and you do fancy music and fancy buildings. You sing Jesus as my boyfriend songs and give them some cheap coffee. People will show up for church, right? But folks, we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. The Christendom model, we are in a post-Christian America. We are in the third largest mission field in the world, the land of the nuns, the duns, the no church, and the de-churched. I go all over the country in my role with Fresh Expressions, and I hear the stories of the lonely barricades. Some pastors who've been preaching longer than I've been alive uh, who say, you know, I've, I've hired the best youth pastor in town. I've increased our programs. We did a, a renovation and our church is still dying. Or young people who I talk to say, you know, I, I'm feeling called by God and I want to do this. I, I just don't get the whole pastor thing. That doesn't feel like me, but I know God's calling me to something but I, I don't see myself in that little small kind of traditional role as a pastor. And so what happens in a post-Christendom model when you're still relying on a Christendom kind of approach is if no one's out there apostling and evangelizing and prophesying, then guess what you get? You get a church in significant decline dying right before our very eyes. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what we're seeing happen. I want to tell you a little story about Wildwood United Methodist Church. So Jill and I and some of our kids are here today. We were sent and we uh, doubled the congregation of Wildwood our first Sunday with our eight children that we have, our blended family. There were about 30 people uh, there when we visited, and most of them chronologically mature, like 80 plus uh, in, that, in that range. Uh, and they were precious people that held the church together for years through the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so when I got to Wildwood, I realized very quickly that there was going to need to be more done than just caring for those 30 people, right? And so I preached a sermon series called The Open Door Policy, and I took the door off my office hinges and put it in the sanctuary. And I told them, much to some people's dismay, I'm not going to be in that office. There's this other guy who said something to the effect of, the world is my parish, and so I'm going to be in your homes. I'm going to be visiting you. I'm going to, I want to know who you are. I want to hear your faith journey. I'm going to love on you. But at the other half of my time, I'm going to be in the community because I'm not sent to just be a spiritual butler for a small group of people. I'm sent to be a missionary pastor to a community. Amen? Amen. And so I started to get out and, and make connections in the community and, and do all that. And people started to embrace it when they started to see the fruits of that labor. And Wildwood today, it's very much like Many congregations, very traditional stuff happens there. 
We have traditional worship services. We have, you know, the Quilters Guild and the United Methodist Women and Bible studies and all those things that happen. And in a daily basis, we could have a lot of requirements as the pastoral team. We could be expected to be a preaching guru, a fundraising phenomenon, an interventionist, a counselor, an electrician, a mechanic, a PowerPoint preparer, a technology expert, and all of that in one day. Can I get an amen from the pastors in the house? But <laughs> there's some other very non-traditional things happening at Wildwood every week as well. Because we've identified the people uh, in our pews not as pew potatoes, but as missionaries who are apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And we've unleashed them and commissioned them, don't tell my bishop, to go and to be the pastors of their communities. And so we have people meeting in a dog park, having church there, and a tattoo parlor, and a burrito joint, and many other places, Western Wildwood, where we meet in the Martin Luther King Jr. building. My wife is the pastor of that church called Connect. And so we've deployed our people to go out and to be the body of Christ and to live into the diversity that Christ has called us to. And when you add unity plus diversity, what you get is maturity. You get a full-grown church. My bishop, Bishop Carter, said a couple annual conferences ago, the time of the professional minister is over. The time of the missionary pastor has come. And you people sitting in these chairs today are going to have to be a new breed of clergy. You're going to have to be just as much missionary as you are pastor. And yes, we need church planters, but we desperately need church replanters. And it's going to take that skill set to be able to love and to care for people but also to expand the gospel. We need, for the love of God, all those gift sets. And so I want to leave you with this today. Be worthy of the calling to which God has called you. Don't let anyone pigeonhole you in some position that's not you. Be who God created you to be and express your gifts just the way Jesus wants you to. Live a life worthy of the calling to which God has called you. If you're an apostle, now I get it. I get freaked out when people start calling themselves apostle so-and-so, amen? Or evangelist such-and-such or prophetess she-and-she. I get that. But if you're an apostle, for the love of God, go forth and be an apostle with your bad apostle self. If you're an evangelist, go out there and preach the gospel wherever anybody will listen to you. This is in our DNA, folks. This is who we are as the people called Methodists or Wesleyans, wherever you fall in that spectrum. We, we come from a spiritual forefather who saw the Anglican church dead and dry and cold. And he said, you know what? He writes in his journal one day, today I have decided to become more vile. And so he starts to go out into the fields and he starts to preach the gospel to the poor and the oppressed and the miners camps and the debtors prisons and the Holy Spirit breaks out and people start to catch on fire with the gospel and thousands of people and tens of thousands of people and millions of people now in this thing that we call the Wesleyan renewal movement. That's what we are. We're a renewal movement within the larger church. Can I get an amen? amen. Go forth and be that. If you're an evangelist, be an evangelist. If you're a prophet, be a prophet. You know, the truth is, maybe all faithful ministry ends on the lonely barricade. And the lonely barricade's not that bad. 
Because it's there on the lonely barricade that we have true solidarity with Jesus. It's there where we remember our crucified Lord. It's there where we have the power of the Holy Spirit in a new way in our life. And it's there on the lonely barricade where we follow our Savior all the way. Go forth to the lonely barricades. Go forth with that life-giving spirit in you. Go forth and continue that Jesus revolution in this world that desperately needs it today. I'm glad we get to end today with communion uh, because it's here that we remember the empty chairs and empty tables. It's here that we remember that Jesus' disciples fled and left him alone on a lonely hill called Golgotha. But it's also here that we celebrate the resurrection and that Jesus, the death-conquering master of all, has unleashed a resurrection power that Paul just told us a couple chapters earlier, that same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, in us, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers as the body of Christ. So let us come to that uh, sad place where we witness the loneliness of the cross and that place of great celebration where we celebrate the resurrection from death. Amen. Amen. Amen.